I'm sitting here laughing at myself. Before we begin, can I just tell you this thing? So <laughs> I'm getting ready to go on the air, and I, I'm thinking about Tucker Carlson. And then I start thinking about the, the Vonnegut novel where the guy pretends to be a Nazi spokesperson uh, while he's actually secretly working on behalf of the OSS. But in fact, his fake identity kind of overwhelms his true mission. Anyway, the, I'm trying to think of the title of it. The only title that's coming into my... This is what it's like to be 67 years old. The only title that's coming into my head is Good Night Moon, <laughs> which is clearly not the name of the book. Um, it, but I, I also follow what's called the Frank Skinner rule, which is you're not allowed to Google something you actually have known. You just have to wait for it to come back. So for the time being, Kurt Vonnegut wrote a book called Good Night Moon that's about Nazis. Good night, swastika. Good night, chair. All right, so let me tell you a little bit about the show today. I have to begin by reminding you about the bed of Procrustes. Procrustes is, I think, the son of Poseidon. He has this kind of stronghold on some main route in Greece, I think. And he lures travelers into to stay at his house. And he has this bed. And he puts them in the bed. And if they're too short for the bed, he stretches them on a rack. But if they get too long for the bed, then he chops off their legs. And so Procrustean has kind of come to mean something like that. And I actually think that in the history of NPR and public radio, we are at a Procrustean moment. Uh, there's one strong channel of criticism alleging that NPR has become medicinal and over-instructive on issues of race and gender uh, and, and sexuality. Uh, and people complain about this to me directly. And it always alarms me because the people who are complaining are people with moderate to liberal politics and value sets that would include a fairly expansive and thoughtful view of questions of race and social justice. But these people see themselves as kind of a choir that's being preached to uh, by in, in a way that they find tedious and, and predictable. Now, there's a second channel of criticism that kind of runs in the opposite direction, flows in the opposite direction, I guess, that alleges that NPR is still the province of pretentious white people uh, and that attempts to remediate that problem are largely cosmetic, and lately because a bunch of high-profile talent uh, who are persons of color uh, have left, that's often cited as proof that this problem is still there. And, you know, I suppose it's possible that both charges are somewhat true, uh, that public media is both too woke and too white. Uh, if that's true, I would still argue that public radio is it's kind of like what Churchill said about democracy, that it's the worst form of government except for all the other forms that have ever been tried. Uh, but we need to keep poking at these questions because you could be driving a Bentley uh, and if there's a red light blinking on the dashboard, you still got to pull over and figure out what that is. So well, we're, we have three different guests today who have uh, different points of view about this. Um, the first is Matt Taibbi, somebody I had the chance to meet and kind of work with on stage on a couple of occasions, an investigative reporter, the co-host of the podcast Useful Idiots and the publisher of the TK newsletter on Substack. He's the author of several books, most recently Hate Incorporated. And one of the reasons I asked Matt, or I had Betsy Kaplan, senior producer emeritus of the Colin McEnroe show, ask Matt to come on is I read a piece of his on his Substack newsletter, to which I subscribe, that said almost exactly that first thing. And Matt, I'm not going to preempt you. I'm going to let you say it yourself. But uh, I'm thinking about the newsletter that was, I think, had something like the NPR's perfect self-own uh, in, in the title. And, and you were talking about the way that NPR had kind of gone after Ben Shapiro without, and it was sort of a 
you know, noticing the moat in Ben Shapiro's eye without seeing the beam in NPR's own eye, right? You were sort of saying that NPR has kind of a reverse version of the Ben Shapiro problem they were alleging. Yeah, I mean, the the Ben, the ben Shapiro piece, uh, you know, I think it was called Outrage is a Business Model, how Ben Shapiro... First of all, hi, Colin. Hi. Yeah, we've seen each other in a while. Exactly. Uh, it was called Outrage is a Business Model, How Ben Shapiro is, is Using Facebook to Build an Empire. And um, and then the, the, the piece just sort of goes on to say that essentially that the show is popular. It has more followers than the Washington Post, but, quote, experts worry that it's furthering polarization in America. Um and, and then it goes on to, to, to note that Shapiro had publicly denounced the alt-right and other people in Trump's orbit, uh, as well as the conspiracy theory that Trump is the rightful winner of the 2020 election. Um, so it, they're not saying that it's like a, 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 you know, a place that produces conspiracy theories or fake news. They're just saying that it's conservative and doing well, which... I, you know, I, that may be disheartening to, to some, including myself in some ways, but I, I don't know that that's a news story. Do you? I mean, I think I, I think that that was the point of that piece. And then I went on to talk about how, um, you know, there have been a lot of complaints about NPR lately and it's it's uh, editorial direction. Yeah. So that's the part that I'm interested in. I, I will say that, um, you know, I, I teach now um, a journalism seminar in which I make my young college students at a Ivy League institution listen to Ben Shapiro and read Breitbart and stuff like that. And sometimes they're kind of surprised that it's not as monstrous as they have led themselves or have right. been led to believe. Uh, and and I think this year we're going to be studying Joe Rogan, too, and I'm, I'm wondering how that's going to work out. But because you can't get away from him. But it was the NPR part. You were basically saying that NPR had become predictable, that it was kind of an industry in-joke now, that if you turn on NPR and listen for 15 minutes, you're going to get a lecture uh, about race or gender or sexuality. Uh, it's going to be instructive and medicinal, and it's not really what NPR's maybe initial covenant was 50 years ago. But I, I, want, I want it in your words. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Uh, now, when people turn on NPR, and, and and this is something that journalists joke about, it, it's you can basically set your watch by how long it takes um, for the audience to be instructed on uh, some version of wrong think <laughs> that, that that it's probably guilty of. I mean, I, I listed a bunch of uh, pieces that had recently been on, including like Tom Hanks is a non-racist. It's time for him to be anti-racist. Um, you know, and then you're, you're 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 constantly being told that you know you have to decolonize your bookshelf or whatever it is, and um, it, there's this hushed kind of imperious tone that is different, frankly, from the NPR that I grew up listening to. And I, I grew up a political liberal who who in, enjoyed the channel. It was always a little bit, you know, kind of on the precious side for me, but but I, I always found it informative and accurate and really valued it. Um, but I think now, you know, it's it's become part of this paradigm that is um, where really all media is guilty of the same thing, where they're playing to a certain audience um, and they fall into the trap of, of being in a bubble with their audience. 
So you know one of the arguments. I mean, you're very sophisticated about sort of the whole world of journalism analysis, scholarship, criticism. So there's this sort of Jay Rosen, Dan Frumkin, Eric Baylert argument, which is journalism shouldn't be symmetrical because we're not living in a symmetrical world anymore. Uh, If there's a genuine fear of an authoritarian takeover, uh, a president or ex-president who was thinking about, uh, was discussing getting the military to seize voting machines rather than surrender his seat, there shouldn't be an equivalence uh, that the the so-called view from nowhere, which was this, this kind of idea that journalists should have a perspective that isn't really located on any particular part of the ideolog- ideological continuum. That's not useful anymore. Declare, declare your perspective and then write or broadcast from it. So what do you make of that argument? Well, uh, f- first of all, I, I based my entire career on... Um, the idea that uh, objectivity isn't really a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I modeled my uh, my work after people like Hunter Thompson and Tom Wolf and Terry Southern, who were very open about their point of view that felt that it was it was impossible to be completely objective. That every editorial decision revealed, um, in one way or another, what what editors thought about things. So if you put a story on page 13 instead of on page one, no matter how you wrote it, you're you're making a declaration about how important you think the story is. So better to be upfront about your biases is what, is, uh, is what I always believed. However, I will say that there's something that's sort of aspirationally useful about trying to be objective. Um, and, and I believe that both models of journalism um, it can it can be good, and you know, I, I grew up in a family of journalists, and once upon a time, the belief system of most reporters was our job is just to get the the facts, get it right, deliver it to you, and then the audience does with it what they want. Um, it's not our job to tell you really what to think about things or to or to guide you in a certain direction. Now, what you're referring to. Um, this revolt against what what they call the view from nowhere journalism or the, the moral clarity argument says the opposite that we have to we have to guide people when we when we give uh, give out the information and I, I I think that's a mistake I think w- what ends up happening is audiences react negatively to being essentially to being treated like children, like that they can't digest information on their own and make their own decisions. And you end up in, in a counterproductive way, um, pushing people from um, the truth rather than, uh, than effectively guiding them anywhere. So, I mean, another argument that could be mustered would be that I, I know that you kind of date the sea change a little bit earlier. Uh, I think you go to a, a Jim Rutenberg piece from maybe 2016, but that heading into the, the BLM protests, uh, the much more recent BLM protests, you know, public radio itself was still awfully white, not particularly cognizant of the points of view uh, of minorities, uh, not particularly good at making sure. I mean, when we do these things called source audits, where we find out, you know, who we're we're putting on the air as guests. uh, And, you know, in in 2018, I don't know, it was something like 83 percent white guests and and only 33 percent women guests. And Mm -hmm. so that, you know, there's an argument for, well, I mean, if you if you if you want to represent the world as it is, 
you need to look at yourself on a pretty regular basis and make sure you're not making choices that are dictated by who's already in charge of various media. So, I mean, there may have been kind of an overcorrection since then, but but I wonder if some of the things that you're talking about now, citing in, in pieces like that newsletter, it, it represents NPR saying, geez, I don't know, maybe we weren't getting this right. Maybe we're, we were telling too much of our own story and not really being representative enough. Well, um, you know, as someone who's written a couple of books about things like police brutality and the racial discrepancy in uh, the criminal justice system, um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's very important to for journalists to go out of their way to try to un, to understand what's going on with all populations and to talk to people and to communicate well what their um what their beliefs and concerns are uh, as as accurately and 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 as effectively as you can however i think i think the trap that npr has fallen into is thinking that there's a certain you know, sometimes I think what they're what they're doing is they're portraying uh, a college-educated, upper-class, uh, white version of what the black point of view is uh, on things. Um, whereas, you know, if 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 you if you spend time, um, you know, as I did in, in neighborhoods like the one that Eric Garner lived in in, in Staten Island and. Uh, you will hear uh, a lot of views that that are that are never expressed on NPR. Like you know, people have um, they have very negative feelings about the police, but a lot of people there um, actually want more more police. Uh, or they will say things to you like, um, "If this were a white neighborhood, they would never let this much violence uh, take place. There'd be more cops here." Like these are difficult issues. Um, and I think that I think that's what I'm trying to say is that if you, if you're going to do that, if you're going to go out of your way to try to represent uh, what poor people, poor working class people, poor minorities think, um, you, you should do it. Uh, but you shouldn't start with like a professor at a university of ethnic studies like that. That that's that's not the way to go. Yeah, and look, we wouldn't be having this conversation if I if I didn't identify with some of your comments. I mean, I, I certainly have days when I'm listening to NPR and I think, wow, we're overcorrecting and, and we're overcorrecting in precisely the way that you just said. And we're excluding a whole lot of other viewpoints. I mean, you know, there is like, for example, this whole thing called the manosphere right now, which I don't identify with at all. Uh, and there's within that a black manosphere that involves people like Kevin Samuels and and Fresh and Fit. You know, you're never going to hear anything about that stuff on NPR because it's very unpalatable stuff for a lot of our audience. And, and, and also, we just don't know about it because it's not part of our world. So I don't think you're wrong about that. But I also feel as though, and this is something you've written about too, you know, it, there's probably some connection between what we're talking about right now and the fact that Joe Rogan has 11 million listeners or whatever he's got right now and Russell Brand and Russell Brand has 4.9 million subscribers on YouTube or whatever but maybe you could say a little bit about that yeah and and again then this this gets back to what I was talking about before where the the predominant attitude in the media once was this idea of the sort of non-judgmental presentation of the news now the new corporate commercial media was always filled with all kinds of biases um it was militaristic uh it, it was prejudicial towards 
big business. It avoided stories about uh, weapons contractors. You know, there's a million things you could criticize them for. It was too white and it was too male. All those things um, uh, are definitely true. But but people, when they turned and tuned into the news once upon a time, did not feel like they were being lectured to. Uh, they felt there was a welcoming tone. Like it, it, Lowell Thomas, the famous CBS radio man, um, he began every broadcast with a salutation that became legendary, which was good evening, everybody, right? Uh, and the idea was, you know, what, whether you have beliefs on the left and the, or the right or anywhere in between, you're welcome to listen in the station. This is a place for, for discussion, for, for, for controversy, but you're, wel you're welcome to come here. And that is, you know, that's, that's kind of what Joe Rogan and, and Russell Brand both have captured. It's, it's, it's not so much their interviewing style um, or their, their presentation, although I would say they both um, are strong in different ways in those areas. It's the, it's the kind of relaxed, non-challenging, non-judgmental tone that for a lot of people is just a big relief. They, 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 they just, they just don't want to be told what to think all the time. And that, and that's why people are fleeing to these places. Although, the, you know, you could sort of argue that and in, in a sense, the conversation we've been having is that maybe NPR is over curated. Those shows seem radically under curated to me. You know, they don't seem to care whether the guest that they're interviewing is right or wrong or in possession of good facts. It would be as if, you know, to use a, a Taibian example, they had some people on just saying that uh, Goldman Sachs was pretty terrific and a force for good uh, in in the world. And and Rogan B would be not and say, oh, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> and, and, right. not, you know, and to me, ultimately, you do have to make some kinds of decisions. You have to make some kind of culling process. NPR does a lot of thinking about that and pre-interviewing. And by the time something gets on the air, there's at least a sense that we understand whether it's right or wrong. And I don't think Rogan seems to even care that much. Well, look, I, I understand that, that criticism, but um, uh, I, again, this gets back to what the role of the media is. And I'll just reiterate that I, that I strongly feel that it is what I was, what I was taught and what I was raised to think, which is our job is to bring you the stuff and your job is to sort it out. Um, now, there was an interview style that was once very, very popular. I think it was exemplified by people, you know, uh, like uh, like Charlie Rose, um, who whose idea was, well, let's draw this person out. Let's let's get this person to talk in his or her own words and we'll inform the reader about what this person's ideas are, um, how, how and why they, they they've come to think the way they do. Um, without necessarily putting them in their place all the time. And I think that, you know, you're right. There, there may be times when you have to push back um, on people who who push outright falsehoods. Sometimes you don't know that, you know, <laughs> uh, you're not aware uh, always when, when people are doing that. But you're right. That That, that is absolutely the case. Um, but the idea it, that the purpose of the show is to introduce you to a person and not to call them out all the time. Um, I, I think is, again, it's refreshing to people who have come to expect that that's exactly the format they're going to get when they turn on uh, almost any form of, of, uh, of commercial media or NPR. 
All right. We're kind of running out of time here, but since you just said that, I kind of want to play a clip for you that happened in the last couple of days, because I think this is an example of NPR doing, I think, what you want them to do. Uh, This is going to be A2, Kat. Uh, This is, uh, I think it took place maybe even on the White House press plane or Air Force One or wherever the press pool is. This is Aisha Roscoe uh, talking to Jen Psaki, uh, the White House spokesperson, uh, about the the recent Syrian raid. Uh, Let's go. Obviously, these events just happened overnight, and so I'm going to let the Department of Defense do a final assessment, which I'm certain they will uh, provide additional detail on once it's finalized. Will there be any, like, evidence or, like, release to support the idea? I mean, I know the U.S. has put out its statement that the, the, that the you know, they've detonated, detonated the bomb themselves. But will the U.S. provide any evidence? Because there may be people that are skeptical of events that took place and what happened to the civilians. Skeptical of the U.S. military's assessment when they went and took out an ISIS terror, the leader of ISIS, that they are not providing accurate information and ISIS is providing accurate information? ISIS, but I mean, the U.S. has not always been uh, straightforward about what happens with civilians. I mean, that is a fact. So that's got to make you happy, right? I mean, first of all, did you love the way Saki, she drips with scorn. Uh, th- this is something I've noticed her with her a little bit with questions she doesn't like. She kind of says them back in this very scornful way. But that's curation, right? That's pushing back against what somebody's saying. Yeah, I wouldn't have even as been as, as polite uh, there. I would have said, "What's what's your evidence for for, for that assertion?" Uh, and then the idea that uh, you know, when when Saki goes into this whole, "How could how how dare you uh, question our credibility?" I would have listed the you know fifteen hundred times the government has lied about everything from you know uh, you know WMDs to to. God knows what else, but anyway, um, no, that's exactly right. That 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 is that is the responsibility of journalists, and and um, and and that's and that's exactly how they should have behaved in that in that situation. I just think it's it's not always the case that this is what audiences are looking for um, from like a casual uh interview show <laughs> you know what i'm right. saying um you know they don't want it to constantly be a culture war battle where you're you're putting someone in their place um that that's a factual issue and that's asking for somebody for evidence which i've been um very critical of people f- uh for not doing with stories like russia gate in the last four or five years uh and so that's absolutely appropriate but I, th- I think what goes on in Rogan's show and to a lesser degree brand show is just um, let's hear what this person has to think. And then you decide. All right. We have to stop there. But I'd love to talk to you to some. I'd actually like you to come to my class someday if you're ever in the <laughs> Of course. But uh, Matt Taibbi, uh, great to talk to you again. Check out Matt's uh, newsletter on Substack. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We all have another guest with a different channel of criticism. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. 
Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org slash unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. As usual, I've screwed up the clock here, so this is going to – I don't have as much time as I would like to, to talk about this, but we're going to talk now to Nikki Usher, an associate professor of journalism at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and a senior fellow at Open Markets. Her third book is News for the Rich, White, and Blue, How Place and Power Distort American Journalism. So, uh, Nikki Usher, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Colin. So a term you use about journalists is microbubbles. Explain that. Yeah. So, I mean, um, what I looked at, and I I really want to be careful to make sure that people don't think that there's a whole bunch of journalists like conspiring in a room about like what coverage is going to look like, Um, you know, like some like big media agenda. Right. I think that uh, it's really important because I think people uh, really do believe that. Right. That people are just kind of like you know, all of the news organizations in the country are conspiring, right? Mm. So I want to be clear before we start talking about this. Um, But I looked at uh, how journalists were talking to each other within the DC context. And what I found was that journalists were mostly talking to each other on Twitter. Um, And because for one of the few populations out there, journalists live and die by Twitter, right? And, And it's part and parcel of their everyday communication. You're eating a meal with a journalist. They're on their Twitter. It's, it's, it's like sort of, you know, and so um, what I found were there were not just one bubble, but a couple of different bubbles um, that are even more insular than maybe I would have even thought. So that's kind of, you know, journalists yeah. just talking to each other. So, I mean, you know, I didn't get a chance to say this to Matt, but to my definition of journalism these days or, or the mission of journalism is to provide a reliable picture of reality. Uh, that's as simple as I can make it sound. And, and so the way to judge us uh, is whether or not we do that. <laughs> and now, right. I mean, one of the ways, one of the things everybody can point to is the 2016 election where anybody who tells you that they knew that Trump was going to win, I, I don't think that, I don't think they're telling the truth, because I'm in these micro bubbles, and I certainly know what everybody mm. was saying, uh, and and I contrast it what I with what I call the Noelke effect. There's this guy named John Noelke. He's just an average mm. guy who lives in Torrington, Connecticut. But what he did for late 2015 and all of 2016, anytime he was in a, like a line at the post office or somebody came to fix his furnace, whoever he was talking to, he said he would just say, "What do you think about this election?" 
And then yeah. he, he wrote it all down. And then he would email it to me. And if I had relied more on what he had recorded, just asking people this very simplistic question, I would have had a much better picture of reality than I did. And, and I think that speaks to your point. I was spending too much time talking to people who were basically different versions of me. And, you know, I think that that really, you know, I don't want you to blame yourself too much because we all do that, right? And one of the reasons we're having the crisis in American democracy that we are is that people are increasingly self-sorting geographically on social media and, you know, politically into people who are more and more like themselves and creating more and more fear and distance and dislike of people not like themselves. So, I mean, don't blame yourself too much. This isn't just a journalism thing, um, though I do want to implicate journalists, but I, I, I just won't, you know, like, don't be, you know, give yourself some, you know, um, just to set the context. Um, but I think you're, you're absolutely right. Um, journalists are talking to other journalists. And I think maybe there's some latent presumption that, um, you know, all of these other journalists are out doing journalism. And so you're really talking to somebody who has some collective knowledge or knowledge that you don't have because of what they're doing. Um, but the sort of downstream effect of that is that people end up reinforcing each other's sort of understanding of what's going on. And I think, you know, that 2016 election really broke me. Um, I was in DC, I worked at, was working at George Washington University. I was living in a dorm filled with students. Um, so that was intense, but uh, I, I was one of those people who kept shouting and shouting at all of these journalists I knew in DC. I'm like, there are Trump flags in places there shouldn't be. Mm. Right. The books at National Airport that are selling out are the Trump books. There are all of these soft pieces. You know, upstate New York is filled with Trump signs like there are all these soft pieces of, of information that don't correspond to the polling numbers. Please just look at what's happening. And and that's really kind of, I think, what led me to the book, um, that that maddening sense of, of insularity and groupthink. So do you think NPR has a specific kind of micro bubble problem or, or insulation problem? I mean, Tucker Carlson says that uh, all of us who work here uh, sound like we're reading a lot of Rilke in our spare time and have complicated opinions about wine, which is sort of that is kind of a stereotype of who 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 does news on NPR and yeah. also who absorbs news from NPR. So so talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as where NPR is empirically situated in all of this, NPR is part of what uh, I call the legacy news bubble. So NPR, Washington Post, New York Times, um, a little bit, the Wall Street Journal, kind of these kind of old school news organizations kind of are all in their own bubble or journalists. So it's not just NPR, it's sort of the constellation of all of that. But I do think that NPR is in a tricky situation because you know, it's claiming to be public media, um, but the voices it represents and sort of the choice and stories, um, you know, it's when your your news is too easy to mock on the onion, you maybe have a problem. <laughs> right. And, um, and and so, you know, but it's a style. Right. And obviously, what is it? Twenty five million people um, a month listen to NPR. Right. That's a lot of people who go for that. Do you think right. it, do you think the funding model has anything to do with this? I mean, ultimately, you know, I need people to give two hundred fifty dollars during a, a, a pledge drive, um, you know, and to maybe want some lovely gift in return. <laughs> um, yes. it, it, do you think that's a little bit of our problem? I mean, I, I think it's 
you know, the funding for public media in the United States is so much less than pretty much anywhere else in the developed world. I think it's uh, $4 per capita across the country for an mm -hmm. entire year, um, maybe at the most. Um, and compared to like, you know, 100, 200, 500 elsewhere. Um, but I, I think, you know, we tend to think that maybe a nonprofit model of news, which which is what NPR is, right? It's an mm. old school nonprofit, is maybe going to be less vulnerable to the market and, you know, filling and answering to the needs of its audience than a commercial um, setup. And I think we find that that's not the case, right? I mean, you're, you're going for donations from the folks that want to proudly display the tote bag that you're gonna give them, right? Mm. And, and, and that says something, like, why are they carrying a tote bag? What are they putting in the tote bag? Is it library books they're putting? You know, like who carries tote bags? Mm. <laughs> and I think that that gets you to, to your sort of what you're arguing, you know? I, I absolutely agree that there are some issues here. This will probably be the last question I have time for, but one of the critiques during that benighted campaign coverage period was if the New York Times or NPR did some pieces about Trump voters and people with kind of who shared some of Trump's less palatable views, the accusation both from press critics, uh, journalism professors, and sometimes just basically the audience was, you're normalizing this. You're writing about this like it's just sort of a normal part of civil discourse. You shouldn't be doing that. Respond to that. So I do think that was the case, and it was really um, clear in 2016 that journalists were really struggling with how to incorporate what was essentially detached from reality into the bounds of, you know, he said, she said journalism. I do think that journalists in 2020 have been doing much better coverage, sort of calling a spade a spade. Um, and so I do think there was a normalization, but I think that it's been somewhat corrected by journalists who are really starting to say, this is a threat to democracy. Um, so I think we've seen some improvement. Um, and it's great that we're having this conversation today because it shows that growth. Yeah. OK, I have time for one more question, but you only have like 45 seconds. <laughs> OK, I, I don't know okay, if, if you'd like NPR to change one thing. Is there a thing that you think we should do better? Diversify its staff and diversify its news coverage. <laughs> All right. That's going to lead perfectly into our final segment. So thanks very much for spending time with me today. Uh, Nikki Usher, Associate Professor of, Professor of Journalism at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Her book, News for the Rich, White and Blue, How Place and Power Distort American Journalism. We have one more guest for you. Uh, I should also say that if you're listening to the broadcast and you want to tell your friends uh, about this, the podcast that you can listen to will actually have a little bit more content that we didn't have time to squeeze in, into this show. Uh, and, and actually, since I started working on this particular episode, there's even more stuff that I wish I could squeeze in someplace else, but I guess not. Anyway, uh, we've got more to come. Love will see us through If only you trusted me Why don't you, you trust me Come to me uh, Before we get into our final segment here, I've got to thank technical producer, I don't know, 
got to. That sounds wrong. I thank our technical producer, Cat Pastor, who is genuinely amazing and makes all this stuff happen. And then senior producer emeritus of the Colin McEnroe show, uh, Betsy Kaplan. She keeps trying to leave. We keep pulling her back in, uh, is the person who uh, produced this episode. And this is a challenging episode. Uh, I mean, it really is. Uh, and so uh, here to help us wrap things up uh, is Jenna Weiss-Berman, uh, co-founder of Pineapple Street Studios, producing podcasts such as Missing Richard Simmons and Still Processing, and what I regard as maybe the best audio thing I've heard in about six months. I was a little bit late to this party, nine uh, twelve, which is Dan Taberski's. You've heard me talk about this on the air already like five times. Dan Taberski's amazing podcast about America after 9-11. Uh, before uh, coming to Pineapple, uh, Jenna worked in public radio for a decade and later started the podcast department at BuzzFeed. She currently sits on the advisory board of The Moth. So first of all, thanks for agreeing to do this. Thank you so much for having me, Colin. Good to be here. And so, I mean, I should just by way of just disclosure say that uh, we are recording this uh, a couple of days before air. <clears throat> uh, the other guests will be uh, on live. So I don't exactly know what they're going to say, but I kind of do know what they're going to say. And so, you know, about half of this show needs to deal with the kind of Matt Taibbi question. He's basically saying that uh, this that, that increasingly journalism is kind of operating in bubbles and uh, as our other guest says for the for the rich, white, and blue in the case of uh, some forms of media. There's sort of that criticism uh, of public radio that in many ways maybe we've become too predictable in, in that form. But there's an opposing train on the track. There's a train going in the other direction. And that train says there's something else going on here that's sort of the opposite, and that is prestigious and talented journalists, women, people of color uh, who are recruited to public radio don't stay. Uh, and I mean, there's a lot of people who don't stay and get a better job. I mean, you leave. That's that's America, right? But there seems to be something else going on, and and we wanted to uh, talk to to Jenna a little bit uh, about that, and and also I think about the predictability question because I actually feel like Pineapple Street has kind of found a way around that. Um, but let's talk about this first thing. I mean, you know, I don't, people who sort of pay attention to public radio, they know they know some names, uh, some names that are gone. Uh, Lulu Garcia Navarro, uh, Audie Cornish, Noel King. And these are all kind of bunched up together. And, and there was some criticism even from within NPR, Ari Shapiro kind of just saying publicly, wow, what's happening Public radio, NPR in particular, needs to look at all this. So that's a big question. I should break it down into a smaller question. And But let's start there. I mean, is is there a meaningful pattern there? Or did a bunch of very talented and accomplished people all just get better job offers within the space of a few months? I mean, I think that there is a meaningful pattern there. Um, and I don't know that it's a brand new thing, but I do think it's being exacerbated by this kind of great resignation that is going on now where people are, I think, really looking at their lives during COVID and saying, what do I want and what do I deserve and what do I need um, in this one life of mine? <laughs> so um, I think, you know, public radio has had this problem for a while, people leaving, and I think it's probably for a lot of reasons, but certainly, um Public radio for a very long time was really kind of the only audio game in town. The only, you know, I mean, there were there were podcasts uh, and things like that for a while, but it was really like when you know when you when it came to prestige audio and you know exciting 
stuff to listen to and well-resourced um, audio outlets. It really was kind of the, the only game in town for a very, very, very long time. And um, over the past really, you know, seven or eight years, podcasting took on a life of its own. Um, new companies started, you know, mostly for profit companies. Um, and I think that you've seen a lot of people leave since then. So, you know, I, I think some of these problems that, that NPR has have always been there. Um, but when it was kind of the only interesting audio job, it went on, you know, it, that stuff could go on for a while. Um, and now that there are other options for people, they're saying, you know, I, I don't want to be at a place that, you know, might not respect me or might underpay me or might not let me be creative in my work. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of people are leaving. For that and other reasons. Right. So, I mean, NPR kind of made a big deal out of being 50 years old uh, here at the station, the, the stuff that we had to air all the time. You, you were never allowed to forget for more than, I don't know, 27 minutes that NPR had turned 50. <laughs> um, and, but when something's 50 years old, even if it's been a cradle of innovation, even, even, even if it really consciously, self-consciously tried to improve on the performance uh, of commercial media in lots of different ways, and I think succeeded in doing that. It also becomes a very specific kind of brand. And there's almost a kind of coral reef that kind of builds up. I, I came here, in t I came out of commercial radio and into public radio in 2009. And in the process of being hired, I was sitting in this conference room and, and one of the executives here shoved this book at me that was, it was like a sort of a binder type book, but it was, you know, you could have beaten a bull alligator unconscious with this thing. It was so big. And he said, these are public radio standards and practices. Uh, you know, you probably better read through all those. And I said, well, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I don't even want to know what the standards and practices are. I plan on violating them anyway. But I mean, yeah. to me, it was a little microcosm, right? There's a sense of public radio as we've figured out how to do something. It's your job to figure out how it is that we figured out to do things. I'd love to hear you react to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that there is that attitude. And I think that when you think about, you know, who public radio listeners are, you think about a type of person. And, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with that type of person. But I think in order to really expand and be interesting, especially to young new listeners, um, NPR has to try harder to reach bigger audiences and more audiences and new audiences. And um, I mean, one of the reasons that I left public radio, I was in public radio for about 10 years, was I just felt like I was sort of making the same stuff over and over again. Um, whatever, you know, whatever show I was at at the time, it just felt like we were making things for very predominantly white, um, overeducated, older, often male audiences. And I was just kind of sick of it. And it, it felt like I would be at a show and it would be sort of the same show every week. It wasn't trying to like innovate or do new, interesting things. Um, and it was often a bunch of, you know, white people talking about how can we be more diverse and pat ourselves on the back for that. And it didn't feel like, um, it didn't, it didn't feel like the reasons for it were really great or, or that anyone really understood why we really needed to, branch out. Um, and so I went, I left for Buzzfeed and we started, uh, this great show called another round that became hugely popular. It was hosted by two young black women. And after that show came out, WNYC launched 
Two Dope Queens and NPR launched the Code Switch podcast, yeah. amazing podcast. But, and I'm not saying that they were, you know, copying us, but I felt like it was a kind of a bummer that public radio was really trailing, you know, um, for-profit podcast companies in when it came to diversity, where it was sort of like they had to see other places do this successfully in order to, you know, take the, take on the risk themselves. Um, and so for me personally, that was why I left. It was like, you know, public radio felt like we do things this way. We don't fully know why, and we're not willing to change. Um, and I think generally there's also this misunderstanding now within public radio that people are leaving because they're getting paid so much more at these um, for-profit podcast companies. And it's actually not true. <laughs> I mean, NPR nationally pays pretty well. Um, and we probably pay about what they, what NPR pays. Um, and, uh, and I think that it's not, it's not about people necessarily looking for more money. Of course that can be part of it and it should be. Um, but, I think that what people really want is they want creativity and they want freedom. I mean, I've talked to a lot of the people who have left public radio and they say things like, you know, I asked them if I could develop a podcast over and over again. And they said, no, um, or, or I, you know, I wanted to get on a longer contract, not just a year by year contract. And they said, no. So I think it's a combination of people wanting to feel respected and to feel like they have some creative freedom and those are really the main, the main reasons why people are leaping, I would say. It, it seems as though from the, maybe from the listener standpoint too, there's, there's kind of two, two very desirable goals. One of them is to have broadcasters like Audie Cornish and, and Lulu Garcia Navarro, who are just terrific. They're terrific on air hosts. And, you know, I mean, that's what, to me, that's what they are first is just really, really good at the job that they're being asked to do. That, and, oh, my God. That is the hardest job in the world. Yeah. I mean, you you have you have an extremely hard job. I can't imagine doing that every day. Oh, yeah. And then, but that Sunday job that Lulu was doing, that's a really hard job to do because a whole bunch of expectations have built up around it. And it's Sunday morning and people are in a particular mood and they probably aren't even all the way out of bed yet. And you so, somehow or other have to tell them really serious and important things without completely... <laughs> <laughs> um, messing up their vibe on Sunday mornings. And, you know, Leanne Hansen was really good at it. But I thought Lulu was really good at it, too. And to me, the Great. fact that she was uh, Latina was secondary. You know, I mean, it's great that they had somebody uh, who was Latina doing that job. And so, in a way, you want an environment where that's the case, right? Where Audie Cornish and Lulu Garcia Navarro are just terrific uh, broadcasters, really good at what they do. And it just so happens that maybe some effort was made to... to find and cultivate talent like that. But then you also want to produce content that really speaks very specifically to certain kinds of experience and to certain kinds. I mean, it's been a minute, you know, I think is an effort to have a show that has a very specific kind of voice uh, and, and that talks a certain way that is, I mean, you know, it's, I'm not the target audience for it necessarily. I mean, I enjoy it because it's a really good show anyway. But I mean, there, there are those two things, right? You want to be able to do both of those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think definitely want to be able to do both of those. And, um, and I think that, yeah, there's been this kind of attitude of, uh, people feeling like they, like the message they're getting is that they are replaceable. And, you know, those two women, especially who you're talking about, 
that that is an amazingly hard job. <laughs> I mean, what Audie Cornish was doing every single day. Like, if I had Audie Cornish on my staff, I would let her do whatever she wanted. I would <laughs> let her try, you know, do if there was like some creative project she wanted to do. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm not a perfect boss. I'm not trying to say that I am, but I think that that there's, you know, when you have somebody that that is that level of talented, you gotta be, you gotta be letting them try to expand and um, do things that are exciting. I mean, I think she did that job. She was at NPR for, I think, 15 years. And um, that is a hard job to do every day. And if you want to, you know, take a year off and develop a podcast, there should be a lot more flexibility around that. Um, and I think just this, you know, I mean, look, I love public radio. I I don't know if I should be saying this, but I hope to go back to public radio someday. I I miss it. And I think it's really important. And I think that the mission is really important. Um, but I think that there has to be more of an understanding that there are a lot of competitors now to NPR and, you know, and public radio has to really appreciate their staff. I mean, I think a lot back to my first public radio job where um, I, we had somebody running the company at the time who when, you know, when you complained about anything, or I remember asking for a raise, I was making $38,000 in New York City, which really <laughs> can't do that. It doesn't get you very far. Um, and I just remember this person saying to me this thing that she had said to a lot of people, which was, I just want to remind you how replaceable you are um, oh. when I asked for a $2,000 raise. Um and I just, I never forgot that. And, you know, the other people working there never forgot that. And I do think that that is unfortunately an attitude that I've seen in different parts of public radio, which is you are so lucky to work here rather than we are so lucky to have you. And that really needs to, to change if public radio is going to survive in the future. Right. I mean, I, and I think that's really interesting and it kind of represents a, a kind of misprision or, or a misunderstanding of how radio works too. I mean, maybe it's a little bit different talking to a producer. I'm, I'm not sure, but, um, but you know, what happens with Audie Cornish or Noel King or Lulu Garcia Navarro or a bunch of other names that I could throw out there that seem to be part of this this pattern is that they become not replaceable replaceable because the audience bonds with a very specific person. This is a job where you talk to people, you know, in their bedrooms, in their cars, uh, in their kitchens. Uh, you know, you're you're present in their lives. The notion that you're replaceable is in fact antithetical to what you should be trying to do in the first place if you're NPR, which is you know, making Audie Cornish, I mean, the equivalent of, you know, I don't know, Derek Jeter or something. You know, Derek Jeter wasn't re replaceable at shortstop. Uh, you could get another shortstop, but it wouldn't be Derek Jeter. And, and, and I feel like if they think that, they don't even understand what they should be trying to do, which is to have people who would be really hard to replace. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I mean, in the they do have all these amazing people who are really hard to replace is, you know, is the reality is, as you and I know. And, um, and I think that that needs to be recognized. It needs to be recognized in how contracts are structured. Um, you know, these people are often on year to year things. They don't know what's going to happen to them next. They're nervous about it. They ask for longer contracts and they're told no. Um, and again, going back to just the creative freedom, if you're, if you're somebody who's been in the same incredibly hard 
you know, daily news job every day, it, it, it might be nice if your job says, yeah, you can, you can go create a podcast for a year and we'll pay you your salary. And it's not just a, you know, thing to make them happy. It's also hopefully ends up being a product that is valuable to the company. Um, so, so yeah, I think that the, the, these stations and NPR nationally just, um, need to really allow people to have some more creative freedom. I mean, it's, we're just so many people are quitting their jobs right now. And there are so many opportunities for really talented people. Uh, you, you gotta be great to your employees if you want to be competitive. You know, the other thing that is happening that you've alluded to repeatedly in this conversation is that at least, I mean, I here at this station to a point where everybody's really tired of hearing me say it. I, I say every day, Every single day, it gets a tiny bit less important that we have a bunch of transmitters, you know, not not drastically less important on any given day. But every day, that's what's happening. That's sort of the erosion of the broadcast model, you know. And and if if you don't, if you're not thinking all the time about transitioning to, uh, you know, a largely podcast, digitally driven model, you're probably steering your boat in the wrong direction. And And what's happened is that there's this enormous cheesecake factory menu of so many things that you that one could decide to listen to if one decided that they didn't care have, about having something come from a broadcasting tower and and I think maybe worth even just sort of playing a little bit of one of your uh, one of your products uh, this is from welcome to your fantasy co-produced by Pineapple Street Studios and Gimlet uh, let's uh, hear uh, a clip in which a historian explores Chippendale dancers and their role in a American culture. I'm Natalia Petrozella. I'm a historian of culture, sex, and gender. And I started researching Chippendales because I was interested in this strange chapter in the history of sex in America. I wanted to know if the promise of Chippendales was real, that role reversal was as simple as women stuffing dollars in men's G-strings. What are you doing here tonight? Watching men! <laughs> women have never had this before. We men never permitted them to have it before. Sex! Sex, sex, and more sex. We actually had an orgy room where they kept the costume. It was fun, a lot of fun. But behind the nonstop party, there was something much darker going on. Police say he was murdered in his 15th floor office. Okay, you know, I mean, that doesn't really sound like NPR, <laughs> does it? But it sounds really interesting. And, and, and that's what you're saying, right? That ultimately for public radio to be competitive, it has to be able to compete at times with something that's very different from the conventional model of public radio. I would say so. And I think, you know, why, why can't that sound like NPR? Or why can't NPR sound like that? You know, I mean, I think NPR should sound like a lot of things. And um, I mean, I think with our company, we're always thinking like, we don't want to have one house style. We want to have lots of different shows for lots of different audiences. And in a way, I think that public radio could be doing more of the same. I'm not saying that they need to, you know, make a documentary about a male strip club. Um, but I think that entertainment is something that, that we're very often thinking about. Um, and that show, I think it teaches a lot about, you know, the history of feminism in America, but it's also really fun and wacky and it's a true crime story as well. Um, and, and I would say just to your point about, you know, things going digital, it's true that, you know, that that's happening. I also think that um, 
that there was a time, you know, at least at the beginning of podcasts where it felt like radio stations were NPR stations were very threatened by this thing that I believe the CEO of NPR at the time called a shiny new toy, which was podcasts. Um, and I, I really think that the opposite is true, which is these two mediums should absolutely be working together and they should be promoting each other. And I think NPR is getting better and better at that now where they're using the airwaves to promote podcasts and using podcasts, you know, to promote public radio shows. Um, but they shouldn't be, podcasts are not a threat. You know, they're the digital world and digital audio is an inevitability. And so the only option really is to, you know, understand that and have the two work together to, um, you know, to be two separate but exciting audio products. Okay, I'm just I'm about to open one huge can of worms here, which I shouldn't uh -oh. do because because Betsy Kaplan is already after me to wrap this thing up. That's what you people do. You wrap it up, uh, <laughs> producers. Uh, but I, I do want to bring this up because I, I think another thing that's happening right here is that if we're going to identify, if we're going to define journalism as as a source of news and information, um, you know, the profession itself is changing. The notion of I mean, suddenly journalism is like the View, you know, where nobody is a remotely trained journalist. Uh, journalism is Joe Rogan to the extent that people get a lot of news and information. Uh, perhaps God help us uh, from Joe Rogan. And that even I don't know that much about Dan Taberski. The main thing I know about him is that he used to be a writer for uh, for The Daily Show. Uh, and I mean, I thought 9-12 was, I wish I'd done something that terrific ever in my life. I thought it was amazing. But but maybe the thing that, another problem that we're stuck on in certain sectors of public broadcasting is, what's journalism and who's a journalist? It's a really interesting question. And for us, I mean, I think that the most exciting people for us to work with are people who um, are great in other mediums and have not done anything in audio before. Um, and they can be journalists or not. I mean, yeah, Dan was a producer. He was a documentary filmmaker. Um, we did this great show called wind of change with Patrick Radden Keefe, who's an incredible mm -hmm. journalist at the New Yorker. Um, but we've also done a lot of shows with people who aren't journalists, you know, who don't, don't really pretend to be journalists, um, but are bringing us, you know, into an interesting story. And I think, for us, I mean, it is a big can of worms and I don't know how far down the rabbit hole we want to go, but I always feel like um, for us, like anything can be journalism if it's very well fact-checked. So when we are working with anyone, we have a super rigorous fact-checking process on all of our shows. Um, and I wish that more people <laughs> would do that in our current uh political climate and journalism environment. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a crazy time. I guess anyone can call themselves a journalist. I just, for me, a journalist is someone who's um, telling the truth. And so that's what we're committed to doing. I think that's a beautiful place to end. So uh, Jenna Weiss-Berman, thank you so much. A co-founder of Pineapple Street Studios. Check out their podcast. I'm about to discover the 11th. I love the concept. Uh, and um, yeah, yeah, talk about avoiding being predictable. <laughs> if you don't even tell people what you're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. It can't be, it can't <laughs> it be predictable. Out once a month. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, break the paradigm. I mean, then that's really what we've been talking about the whole time. Break the paradigm. Just try to break it in a good way. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy. Uh, and thanks for spending time with me. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you hop on the bus. You don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key. And get yourself free. Slip out the back. Make a new plan. Stand. You don't need to be caught wrong. You just listen to me. Hop on the bus. You don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key. And get yourself free.